that day has always left a deep impression in my life. I was attending worship, the church I grew up in. I was a little boy. And I remember the Sunday that Jimmy came to the front during the invitation portion of the service. Jimmy was the grandson of some faithful members in our church, and Jimmy had been living a prodigal life. He'd been running away from God, going down the wrong path, going in the wrong direction. But something happened in Jimmy's life that morning. As the Word of God went forth and the Spirit of God applied it to his heart, Jimmy made a decision to follow Jesus. And he came to the front, and there were tears in his eyes, and the pastor counseled with him, talked to him, presented him to the church. Uh, there were tears in the eyes of church members. There were celebration. There were amens over Jimmy's decision to follow Christ. Well, after that glorious day, Jimmy was around maybe for the next two or three weeks, and then you didn't see Jimmy as much, and before you knew it, Jimmy was nowhere to be found. And I thought often about that, about Jimmy coming forward, and obviously his heart was being moved, he had tears in his eyes, God was doing something in his life. And I wonder what the mindset of the church was in that moment. I wonder if, if we as a church kind of thought, this is the finish line. Jimmy has decided to follow Christ. Our job is done. When maybe the proper perspective would have been the real work is just beginning. As we help Jimmy to grow and mature in Christ. I don't know what the mindset was, but I do know that day always made a deep impression in my life. So I want us to think this morning about our goal as a church. What is the finish line for us? What are we shooting for? What are we trying to achieve and see happen in others' lives? Well, Paul speaks to this in the book of Colossians. We're going to finish chapter 1 this morning and see two verses where Paul speaks powerfully on this issue. The title of my sermon is Convert or complete. Convert or complete. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. I want to show you what Paul says. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 28. I want to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, living, inspired, inerrant word. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. Let me just say quickly it is good to be back with you. Thank you for your prayers. Trey and I had a wonderful trip to India. Uh, so glad to be back, and you'll hear more in the coming days as to how God worked in that trip, but it is good to be back home. Good to be back at Longview Point. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. By the way, I'm sorry I missed pre uh, preaching outside. I would love to have been here while you're having worship on the grass. That would have been awesome. Uh, when I saw how that was playing out, I said, man, I wish I was there. But anyway, uh, you carried on without me, and uh, it's good to know that Building or no building, we're still going to worship Jesus, amen? Now, rain might have been a different thing, but, <laughs> but building or no building, we're going to worship Jesus, amen? And it's good to see the progress that we're making in the expansion. God is good. Colossians 1.28, the Bible says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that, watch this, 
we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We are so grateful for your presence here. We're so grateful for your word. You have not left your people to wander through this world with uh, no guidance, no truth. Lord, you have spoken to us. We have the Bible, a sure word from heaven. We can build our lives upon it. We can build our church ministry upon it. We are grateful for the truth of your word. We ask you to, to speak to us in a mighty way. Holy Spirit of God, would you take the word and apply it to our lives so that we might be changed. Lord, our Our individual lives might be changed. Our families might be changed. Our church might be changed. Lord, have your way in our midst. Would you work in such a way that the the mighty name of Jesus is exalted in this place? Lord, it's all about you. It's not about us. It's all about you. And we are here to ascribe to you the worth that is due your name. We are here to be changed so we can live in a way that honors you. Lord, establish my steps today in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've studied the book of Colossians, we've seen this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae. He wrote it somewhere around 61 or 62 AD. And we know that Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. And he'd gotten a report as to how the church in Colossae was doing. So he's writing this letter to the church to address some things he heard that concerned him to encourage them in some areas that he heard that were positive. And he's writing this letter to uh, help them as they grew as a local body of believers. And it is, a, it is a wonderful letter full of tremendous truths. We've seen in chapter 1 that Paul prayed for these believers in Colossae. We see that he uh, quotes uh, an old hymn, an ancient first century hymn that exalts the work of Christ and the person of Christ. He even mentioned his suffering on their behalf, how he had was willing to suffer for the body of Christ to see that the gospel goes forward. And as, he, as we get to the end of this chapter, the end of chapter 1, we see Paul make some very important comments about his goal as a minister of the gospel. And I think we can learn much from this because I believe his goal is a biblical goal. It ought to be our goal. And so I want you to see three aspects of Paul's ministry, three aspects of Paul's ministry that we want to emulate, that we want to follow the pattern that Paul lays before us. The first aspect of Paul's ministry I want you to see is the purpose. The purpose. What is the purpose of Paul's ministry? Why is Paul doing what he does? Verse 28 says, We proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. As we think about Paul's purpose of ministry, and our purpose as a local church, I want us to think about two different areas. I want us to think about the scope of our ministry and the end goal of our ministry. Paul shows us that the scope of his ministry is every person that he encountered. Look what he says there in verse 28. We proclaim him admonishing, notice the repetition here, every man teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present, what is it? Every man complete in Christ. You see that threefold repetition, Paul is alluding here to the scope of his ministry. Paul's saying, everyone that I come in contact with, I want this for their life. Everyone that I encounter, I want to see them uh, reach completeness in Jesus Christ. And so, 
Paul's ministry was not limited. Paul wanted to see everyone that came into a sphere of influence uh, move toward Jesus, move toward maturity in Christ, the scope of his ministry. So what's the scope of our ministry? Every person we encounter. Now, people come to our church, and we want to, we want to minister to them and point them to Jesus. But we also encounter people during our week, don't we? And you encounter people that I will never encounter. People at your workplace, people in your neighborhood. And we need to say, our goal, our, the scope of our ministry is to impact everyone that comes into our sphere for the glory of God. That was Paul's heart. Every man, every man, every man. But I also want you to see the end goal of his ministry. What was the end goal? What was Paul shooting for? What was the finish line that Paul held out there as something to strive for? Well, the end goal, watch this, is not conversion. It's completeness. Look what he says. We proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present, here it is, we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul's goal was not conversion, it was completion. It was maturity. The word uh, translated complete uh, could be translated mature, it could be translated It could be translated complete. Your Bible may say one of the two. The idea there is is a functional uh, maturity. The word complete means fully equipped for an assigned task. That's what it means. It speaks of of this functional maturity. You are able to do what God's called you to do. You have grown to the point where you are effective serving the Lord. Functional maturity. That's the way Paul uses this word over in Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians with me, just a couple books before Colossians. Ephesians chapter 4. Look what Paul writes in verse 11. Paul writes, He, Jesus, gave to the church some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So the Lord has given to the church these different offices. For what purpose? Look in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ. So he's saying the officers of the church have been given to the church to equip the members of the church to do what God's called them to do. To do the work of ministry. Then look in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. Now that word mature is the same word translated complete over in Colossians. Teleos. To a mature man, a complete man. It speaks here of a Christian being equipped so that they can do what God has called them to do. They grow to the point where they are able to serve the Lord effectively and bring glory to His great name. This word was used of broken limbs being healed and becoming useful again. It was used of fishing nets being mended and thereby being able to catch fish. It was used of ships being fitted with ropes and sails for the sea. You see the word there? It means to to get the Christian ready to do what God has called them to do. And Paul says, here's my goal. Here's my finish line. Every man complete, functionally mature in Christ. Now, conversion is very important, right? Right? I mean, you've got to start somewhere. It starts with conversion. It starts with being born again. It, it starts with receiving the grace of God through Jesus Christ by repentance and faith. That's, that's where it starts. Conversion is very, very important. 
But conversion is not the end goal. Conversion saves your soul. It keeps you out of hell. Gives you the hope and promise of heaven. Gives you a relationship with God. Promises full forgiveness of your sins. It's very important, but it's not the end goal. Paul said, I want to see people saved, converted. Then I want them to grow to maturity so they can serve the Lord effectively. Now, someone might argue, Wade, time is short. There's an urgency. People are dying and going to hell. Jesus could come back at any moment. So we as a church need to be about evangelism, getting many, as many people saved as we can. Once they get saved, some may grow, some may not, but we just need to, we need to see people saved. That, that needs to be the focus of our ministry. Evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. Get as many people in the kingdom as possible. And I would say, I agree, we want to get as many people in the kingdom as possible. But here's the question. How does that happen? How do you get as many people in the kingdom as possible? I would submit that you get as many people in the kingdom as possible as you teach new believers to grow to the point where they can reach out themselves. For example, let's just say that 100 people in Longview Point Baptist Church said, we're going to be evangelists in 2013. And 100 people lead, every one of those 100 leads one person to Christ. At the end of 2013, there's been a 100 new believers, 100 people born again. That would be awesome, right? It'd be good. The next year, the same things happen. Those same 100 people lead 100 more people to faith in Christ. The same thing happens in 2015 and 2016. So the end of four years, there are 400 new believers in Christ because these 100 people have led someone to faith in Christ every year. That would be pretty incredible. But listen, what if instead of those 100 people reaching out with the gospel, the 400 new believers reached out as well? So instead of having 100 people reach out, you have 500 people reach out. Do you think there'd be more results? You think you'd see more happen? It would not be addition. It would become multiplication very quickly. And that's what Paul's saying. I want to see people converted. I want to see them saved. But I want them to grow into maturity in Christ so they can live for the glory of the Lord themselves and reach out themselves to a lost and dying world with the gospel. The end goal is not conversion. The end goal is completeness. And you can argue with me, but I don't think you want to argue with Jesus. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, discipleship begins with conversion. You have to begin to follow Christ at some point in your life. Amen? Conversion is important. Salvation is important. But he said, make disciples, not converts. And he told us what that looks like. When they become a follower of Christ, you baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Then you teach them to observe all the commandments of Christ. It's not just get them into the kingdom and say, good luck. It's get them into the kingdom and teach them so they can grow to a place of completeness. They can grow to a place of teleos. They can grow to a place of maturity in Christ. That's what Jesus said. So the church needs to make sure it's not just about evangelism, that's part of it, but it's evangelism that is balanced by discipleship, which is really the right kind of evangelism. Not conversion, completeness. That should be our goal as a church. That should be our goal as individual believers. That's the, the purpose of Paul's ministry. That was the finish line, not just to get somebody to say, I'm saved, but to say, are you growing? Now, as we think about the purpose, I also want us to think about the process of Paul's ministry. What did Paul do to see this happen? What was Paul's process in leading people 
to maturity in Christ? Well, the process is twofold, and it's really, really simple. This is not, it's not rocket science. It's really, really simple and clear. The first part of his process was simply proclamation of Christ. He lifted up Jesus and pointed people to Jesus. That, that's what he did. Proclamation of Christ. Look what it says in verse 28. We proclaim him. We proclaim him. That's his method. That's his process. We proclaim Jesus. We lift up the person, the work of Jesus. We lift up the teachings of Jesus. We proclaim Christ. Now, how does that happen? Well, there are two participles that modify this one verb. They help us understand what it means to proclaim him. The first participle is the word admonishing. Look what it says in verse 28. We proclaim him admonishing every man. What does the word admonishing mean? To admonish means to correct and to warn. This verse is used all throughout the New Testament. Let me show you a couple of uh, examples of this. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Verse 31, Paul here is speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He's getting ready to say farewell to them. He want to give them some instructions as to how they are to lead their church. And in Acts chapter 20... Verse 31, here's what Paul says. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul's saying, part of my ministry to you, church of Ephesus, was to warn you and to correct you, and it was hard. That's why he said I did it with tears. It wasn't easy. But I, but I did what was necessary to warn you to get off the wrong path and onto the right path. Admonishment was a part of Paul's ministry. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let me show you another use of this word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He's talking about people that would disregard Paul's instruction to that church. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Do not regard him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. Admonish, correct, warn, so that they'll get off the wrong path onto the right path, so they'll do what they are called to do. This is the work of admonishing. This speaks, and I want you to hear me carefully, this admonishing speaks of accountability. It means that we are willing to hold each other accountable. It means we're checking on one another. We're asking each other hard questions. When we see someone going the wrong direction, we try to come along beside them to help them get back going the right direction. Accountability. Admonishing. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man. Paul knew it was not fun, but it was necessary to warn and correct. If people are going to grow from babes in Christ to functional maturity, they would need to be warned and corrected when they went the wrong path. So this speaks of an accountability in his ministry. R Richard Mellick, the New Testament scholar, writes this. Admonishing in Scripture has the connotation of confronting with the intent of changing one's attitudes and actions. Here the term speaks to the task of calling to mind a correct course of action. It encourages people to get on with what they know to do. It's the word admonishing. To correct, to warn, to confront. It's not a pleasant word. It's no fun to do this, but it's necessary. If you have children, you know this. 
Children don't just grow into well-adjusted adults without any correction. Amen? You've got, you got to warn. You've got to confront. You've got you to correct. And it's the same thing with new believers in Christ. They are born again. They are babes in Jesus. And if we're going to help them grow to completeness, we've got to be willing to admonish. We've got to be willing to correct. And, listen, listen, we've got to be willing to be admonished. Right? We, we got to be willing to let people speak into our lives if we're going to grow. So how do you proclaim Christ? You admonish folks. With truth, with love, you warn them, you correct them when they go down the wrong path or believe the wrong thing. There, there's another word, another participle here that modifies the idea of proclaiming Christ. It's the word teaching. Look what he says back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He says, we proclaim him admonishing every man, and here it is, teaching every man with all wisdom. Paul knew an important part of discipleship was to teach the great truths of the faith. This word teaching speaks of the orderly presentation of Christian truths so that a person may know what to believe and what to do. When someone becomes a believer in Christ, they don't know everything they need to know, right? I've, I've been walking with Christ since I was nine years old. I don't know everything I need to know. And so part of our job is to teach the great truths of the faith. They know what to believe. And, and the practical aspect of what it means to walk with Christ and serve Him. We teach Him what to do. Now that someone becomes a Christian, there's some things to do. What are they supposed to do? They'll never know if we do not teach them. So Paul said, here's what it means to proclaim Christ. We admonish and we teach. We teach and we admonish. Now here's a little question for you. Quick poll. Out of these two, these two functions, admonishing and teaching, which one is missing the most in contemporary Christianity? What do you think? Say it. Admonishing. We, we, we know how to teach, don't we? We got bookstores and study Bibles and internet resources and study guides and DVD lessons. and We got all, we got all these resources to teach these truths. We've got more Bible study resources in the church than we've ever had in 2,000 years of existence. It's amazing all the things that are out there. You should see the Bible study software I have. If you knew how many resources were at my fingertips, you would never accept another mediocre sermon. <laughs> you think, wait, go back to your office. You, you, you can do better than that. It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing all that we have. The, the issue is not teaching. We know how to teach and, 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 and develop these Christian truths in the body of Christ, what's missing is the admonishing piece where we're willing to do the tear-filled work of correcting and warning. There's no accountability. No one's checking on another person, and we wonder why our churches are full of babies in Christ. And so Paul says, here's my process. We proclaim him. Isn't that simple? We proclaim Him. We point people to Christ. But there's another part of the process. Not only proclamation of Christ, but hard work. <laughs> Discipleship, I want you to hear me, is hard work. It is not easy. Look what Paul says in verse 28. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this, this goal of completion, for this purpose also I labor. The word Paul uses, translated labor, means to work to the point of exhaustion. 
Now there's a word that the, the Greek language uses for work, which is kind of a common word for work. It's, it's the word ergon. It'd be the word we use for, I get up and go to work on Monday. Just a, kind of a, a common, uh, overarching word for work. That's not the word that Paul uses here. The word that Paul uses, translated labor, is the word kopos. It speaks of labor to the point of exhaustion. It was used for work, listen to this, which left one so weary, it was, as, it was as if the person had taken a beating. You ever done some hard work and you get home, you felt like you've been taking a beating? Paul's saying, I've been laboring to such a degree that it feels like someone's beat me. I've been putting in the hard work to see people grow to maturity in Christ. Then he uses another word. Look what he says in verse 29. For this purpose I labor, striving. That word striving is an interesting word. It's where we get the word agony from. Agonizomai. It's where we get the word agony. In other words, he's saying I am, I am doing what's necessary, even though it's difficult to see people grow to completeness in Christ. Striving was an athletic term. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 9.25. The same word is used. And it's also a military term. You can see that in John 18.36. And so Paul's saying, like an athlete competing in a, an event trying to win the day, like a, like, an, like a soldier trying to win a battle, I am striving to see people complete in Christ. Now what do we get from all this? For this I labor, striving. What do we, we get from this? Listen, that discipleship is not easy. It's hard work. It, it's roll up the sleeves kind of work because it's going to take time. And it's going to mean that you involve yourselves in other people's lives. It's going to speak of relationships and walking with them through the messy stuff of life. So here's what it means for Longview Point. If we're going to see people grow to completion in Christ, we've got to be willing to put in the hard work. I read this quote last week. When all is said and done, there's more said than done. We talk a lot about discipleship, don't we? But we've got to make sure that we're not talking about discipleship more than we're doing discipleship. We've got to be willing to put in the hard work. I love what G. Campbell Morgan writes, great uh, pastor and preacher of the early 1900s in England. He writes, What is true of the minister is true of every man who bears the name of Christ. We have not begun to touch the great busyness of salvation when we have sung, Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. We have not entered into the busyness of evangelizing the city or the world until, listen, we have put our own lives into the business. Our own immediate physical endeavor inspired by spiritual devotion. In other words, it's not just enough to talk about discipleship. It's not enough to talk about winning people to Christ. It's not enough to sing, rescue the perishing. We've got to get to work. We've got to roll up our sleeves. A physical endeavor spurred by spiritual devotion. That's what Paul's talking about here. So the question is, are we willing to put in the hard, messy, difficult work to help people grow in Christ? The last church I pastored, we had a really neat thing happen. We had a younger couple that had been visiting our church for several weeks and one morning I was preaching on John chapter 3 where 
Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I just hammered at that sermon. You must be born again. You must be born again. Church membership doesn't save you. You must be born again. Baptism doesn't save you. You must be born again. Being a Baptist doesn't save you. You must be born again. I was just hammering it that, that, that Sunday morning. Well, that night we had a special fellowship at our church, and the young man walked up to me and says, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And we went into my office and he said, I need to be born again. And so there in my office, I walked into the gospel, and, and he prayed to receive Christ. He became a follower of Christ there in my office. Isn't that awesome? He became a brand new believer. A, 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 he was born again. A convert. Well, this gentleman had been living with his girlfriend out of wedlock. And I had to go talk to him about that. So I made an appointment. I went to their house. I sat him down at the table. We walked through what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to call Jesus Lord, and then I said, let's talk about this issue. I want you to know that's not easy. It was really uncomfortable. But I share with him that as a follower of Christ, if you want to do what Jesus wants, you want what's best for your life. What the Bible says, it's going to mean that you move out of this household until you guys get married. And it was, it was really tough. It was, it, listen, it was messy. I would have just loved if he would have got saved and said, I'm moving out, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. But no, he needed someone to come along beside him and point him to the truth of God's word. And it was hard. And it wasn't fun. I didn't like it, but it was necessary. And we've got to be willing to see people saved, but also to help them to grow. To admonish them, to teach them, to roll up our sleeves and get involved in their lives. Life on life helping them to learn what it means to walk with Jesus. Right? And so Paul's purpose, every man complete in Christ. Paul's process, proclamation of Christ, hard work. <laughs> but third, I want you to see the power. The power of Paul's ministry. Look what he says in verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving, watch this, according to his power, which mightily works within me. Literally, this verse reads, I'm striving according to his energy, which is working in me in power. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm putting in the hard work, I'm putting in the labor, but I'm leaning on the power of Jesus. I know that I cannot do what's required of me to help people to grow if I do not have the power of God resting on my life. It's like the old song says, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So what do we learn? We learn that we are to live and do ministry with diligent dependence. Both are important. We've got to be diligent to get involved in people's lives, teaching the truths of the Christian faith, admonish them, well, we've also got to be dependent, knowing that nothing of eternal value will ever happen if the Spirit of God's not in it. Diligence, dependence. Dependence, diligence. We see both taught in Scripture. We're to put forth the effort, but understand that we can only be effective if the power of God is actively working in our lives. This was not theoretical for Paul. Paul was not talking about the, the theoretical ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew the Holy Spirit was active in his life, working in his life, empowering him to do what he needed to do for the glory of Christ. To do what he needed to do to help people to grow from, from conversion 
to completeness. He was reliant upon the power of God. And so listen, church. Ministry's hard work. Discipleship's hard work. Getting involved in people's lives is really hard work. But God has not left us without a helper. He promises promises us the power of the Spirit if we'll just surrender daily. Every day. Holy Spirit, take control. Holy Spirit, empower me to do what I need to do today. Empower me to make disciples. Empower me to lift up Christ. Empower me to walk with Christ. Give me the power I need. So we see the power for his ministry, which I believe was, was why Paul's ministry was so effective. It wasn't just strategy and plans and mission statements and vision statements. He knew he had to have the power of God. Listen to one viewpoint. We can have good plans, good strategies, a good ministry philosophy. But if we don't have the power of the Spirit working in us individually and His hand on us as a body of believers, we are just spinning our wheels. And time is short. I don't want to spin our wheels. Do you? I mean, I really want us as a church to, to make an impact. It's only going to happen if the Holy Spirit is working in us with power. Trey and I had a wonderful trip to India. and During that trip, we got to do some ministry with a, a, a pastor that I had met two years ago when I was in India. His name is Jay Paul. And sometimes when you're, when you're uh, traveling overseas, you just meet another brother that your heart's just knit to their heart. You just, you just really grow to love them. And, and that's the case with Jay Paul. I just come to really love Jay Paul. He has a, a wife and a three-year-old boy, and they're just a precious family. He's doing ministry in Madurai, India. Uh, Madurai is in the Tamil Nadu state of India, and it is a tough place to do ministry. Madurai is, is known as kind of the cultural and religious center of Tamil Nadu. In the middle of this city, there is a very large, very ancient Hindu temple. And Trey and I, along with the people we were with, had an opportunity to go to this Hindu temple. You go and you take off your shoes, take off your socks, and, and you walk around this ancient complex. And everywhere you go, you see gross, rampant idolatry. Just in-your-face worship of idols. People deceived. It is dark. It is demonic. It is disturbing. Near the end of, of our time in that, in that Hindu temple, we saw a father come to this gold pole-type structure, some type of idol, and he had a, probably a three- or four-year-old son, and, and he, he laid the son down. You could tell, by the way, the son didn't move. That something was wrong with him. He, he was disabled. And he lays his son down on this stone floor, and then he lays down beside him before this gold object, and he kisses the floor and begins to worship. And it was very obvious what he was doing. He was bringing his son to get healing from this idol, from this false god. And Trey and I have kids about that age, and it just, it just gripped our heart. It was, it was just so very sad to see people led astray to that degree. Matter is a tough place to do ministry. It is a dark, dark place. And here you have J. Paul, the pastor, trying to reach people for Christ in the midst of this, this situation. You know what the name of J. Paul's church is? The name of his church is the Power of God Church. I like that. You know what his son's name is? His son's name is the Greek word that is translated power in our text this morning. 
His son's name is the word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. And he named his son dunamis, Greek for power. And I thought, that is really cool. Dunamis. Now, why would he name his son Dunamis? And why would he name his church the Power of God Church? Because he understands something we all need to understand. If you're going to impact that kind of lostness, if you're going to push back that kind of darkness, if you're going to impact people lost and, and far from God and involved with that kind of idolatry, you're going to need the power of God. You can't do it on your own. And so he knew this. Power of God, church. Dunamis, he knew he needed the power of God. And we all need the power of God. The needs are great. Time is short. Our nation's going the wrong direction. People are living desperate lives. We need the power of God. Paul said, I labor striving according to the working of God that works with power, with dunamis in me. I think often about Jimmy, the young man that came to the front during the invitation of the church I grew up in. As I look back and reflect, I just think our church had this mindset. He's reached the finish line. He's saved. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Instead of the more biblical thought, our work is just beginning. We need to teach Jimmy what it means to walk with Jesus. What it means to serve him and live for his glory. Our work is just beginning. Listen to me. We don't want any Jimmys at our church in terms of people making a profession of faith, but never having someone come along beside them and teach them what it means to grow to maturity, to grow to completeness in Christ. We've had... A lot of folks saved here recently. I've, I've been calling it a mini-revival. Children, teenagers, adults just giving their lives to Jesus. It's awesome to see what God is doing. So you know what that means, Longview Point? Our work is just beginning. That's why connect groups and all these things are so important because we are trying to lead people, not just to conversion. That's important, but we're trying to lead them to completeness. It's an entirely different mindset. And may our church have that biblical mindset.